Hello, everybody. My name is Arnold Serapilio, and I am a Reader Services Assistant at the Boston Athenaeum, although you probably know me better as Jimmy's sidekick. Um, it is my great pleasure to welcome tonight's speaker. Uh, but before we do that, I will ask you to take note of the emergency exits at the front and rear of the room and to silence any noise-making devices once and for all. Uh, this event is the second in a three-part series on Athenaeum authors and their work. Uh, so please join us on January 11 for Colin Murphy's discussion of his new book, Cartoon County, which is a history of cartoonists and illustrators uh, from the uh, Connecticut School. Now, on to tonight's speaker, Mr. Bill Kuhn. Born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, he spent a transformative year living in England when he was 12 with his family, and it left him a permanent Anglophile. Um, he has a, a BA in history uh, from the University of Chicago and a PhD in history from Johns Hopkins. Um, he's launched two other books here, a biography on Jackie Onassis, entitled Reading, Reading Jackie, Her Autobiography and Books, and a novel called Mrs. Queen Takes the Train, which is a fictional account of the Queen of England's escape from the palace. Unlike his previous two books, uh, which were brought out by publishers in London and New York, his current, uh, current novel, which he will be talking about tonight, Prince Harry, Boy to Man, is self-published. Bill Kuhn will discuss tonight, some, uh, rather will share some stories from his new novel, as well as his journey from six-figure advances and uh, film options to haggling with the machinations of texting and uh, pasting text online with Amazon. Please now join me in giving a warm welcome to Mr. Bill Kuhn. You know, I think, um, first of all, Arnold, um, you, who you see at the circulation desk sometimes, you have to encourage him to publish his own work because he's in my writing group and his own work is very, very good and he uh, needs some persuasion. So the next time you check out a book, you can nag him a little bit. You know, I think the important thing to know about me is that uh, I'm just a kid who grew up in Columbus, Ohio, on the banks of the muddy Olentangy River, who was starved for some glamour. <laughs> and it's always been my life's goal to get inside Buckingham Palace and meet the Queen. Um, and I've gotten partway along, uh, along that journey, um, and I'm gonna tell you a little bit about, uh, about where I am now. Um, I've organized this presentation around four questions. Uh, who is Prince, Henry, Prince Harry? Uh, what's your book about, and how'd you, uh, uh, What's your book about? And I've got a little stage reading, um, which I'm going to do, or rather some other members of my writer's group are going to do um, to give you a flavor of it. Um, why do you decide to write this book? And how did you get started on it? That's the third question. And the fourth is, did you do research for the book? And how did you do that? Um, as Arnold said, this is my first self-published book. I haven't got... Uh, a lot of stuff on that in the tech, the main body of the presentation, but I'm happy to 
handle any questions you've got about that in the Q&A afterwards. Okay, um, so Henry, Charles, Albert, David is a prince of the United Kingdom, usually known as Harry, born to Charles and Diana, prince and princess of Wales. Uh, and there's a picture of him at two or three with an early sign of his personality. Uh, his grandparents on his mother's side uh, were the Earl and Countess Spencer, both of whom have now died. That's Diana's father uh, over, uh, over there, uh, who, uh, when he was alive, uh, was known as Johnny Spencer. Uh, Harry's grandparents on his father's side are the Queen and Prince Philip, both of whom are still alive. Uh, the Queen's diminutive name, uh, as many of you know, is Lilibet but I doubt there are very many people alive who dare to call her that to her face. Um, at least not now. Uh, Harry has an older brother whose name is William and a sister-in-law, Kate. Both of these guys are tall guys and they, they look unlike uh, the rest of the royal family. Harry's 6'2 and his brother is tall, is tall as well. Um, I haven't been introduced to either one of them, but I was once fairly close to William uh, at uh, a garter service in St. George's Chapel in, in Windsor. He towers over his father. Um, so that's one of the things that, that's kind of unusual about his appearance and you don't get from his pictures. He was born on September the 15th, 1984. So tomorrow he's going to be 33. Uh, between the ages of 13 and 18, Harry went to Eton College a famous boarding school on the other side of the river uh, from Windsor. He didn't have a particularly distinguished academic record there. Um, and the decision was made for him not to go on to university as his brother did, uh, but to go straight into the army. Uh, he did learn some useful things there though, like making toast. Which I think that was the, <clears throat> I think that was the, a PR photo to show that he's doing ordinary things. He went to the Royal Military College in, at Sandhurst in 2005. It's sort of a British version of West Point. Uh, he did a course there and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the British Army. And you know that thing that American tourists do where they go up to Buckingham Palace and they go to those guys in bear skins and they try and make them laugh? Um, well, it turns out the Queen likes to do it too. Uh, and here she is uh, reviewing the cadets at Sandhurst and trying to get Harry to laugh in a time when he's not supposed to. Age 23, uh, Harry was deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in December of 2007 as a forward air controller. There was an embargo agreed with the UK media so his presence wouldn't endanger the guys he was with. The idea was that if everyone knows he's there, um, he's a target and the guys that he's serving with are targets too, so keep it a secret. In February of 2008, however, only a few weeks after he got there, um, an Australian reporter broke the embargo. Um, and that was picked up by the Drudge Report in the United States, and after it appeared on the Drudge Report and was picked up by CNN, the British Army made the decision to send Harry home early. 
the UK new news media was observing the embargo. The Australian who broke the story claimed that uh, she didn't know it was embargoed. And Matt Drudge and his friend Andrew Breitbart always considered themselves as bound by no rules. Um, so that was sort of the, um, the means by which uh, he got sent home early in uh, 2008 after he'd only been there for a few weeks. Well, while we're on the subject of illegal reporting, there's a picture one of Harry's buddies took of him out in, out in Afghanistan that was definitely not sanctioned by Kensington Palace or by the British Army. So it wasn't just Drudge and the Australians who were tempted to break the rules. And if that picture doesn't stir your curiosity about what actually happened to Harry when he was out there, I don't know what will. Um, my novel starts with a series of what-if questions, because we don't actually know um, what the story was of his time out there. But what if the journalist who blew his cover out there was not an Australian, but an American? And what if she worked for CNN? In those days, the Pentagon had a ban on women, uh, uh, on women reporters being embedded with the troops. So what if our CNN reporter was a woman who dressed as a man in order to get around the Pentagon's then ban? And what if she had a good reason to blow his cover? I mean, I think I'm tired of the royal family's handlers blaming the Americans. Um, so I imagined a sort of a situation where uh, there was a little bit more complexity behind um, the media uh, reporting his being there. Also, and here are a few more of my what if, what if questions. What if Harry had a brother officer who was a smooth, cosmopolitan Londoner of Afghan heritage? And what if, on top of all that, Harry had a former nanny who, who didn't get to see as much, uh, who didn't get to see as much of him uh, as, uh, as she liked in, in the UK, found out he was being deployed, and stowed herself away on the plane? Um, those are my what-ifs. Um, so the, the novel begins with a factual situation and, it, and an actual young man, but it then imagines what his first deployment um, to Afghanistan might have been like. Um, so, whoops. Now we've got um, a little interlude in the presentation where we've got a little staged reading. And before I, before I bring the readers up, I'd like to just give you a little background on this staged reading. This comes from very early on in the book where Harry's in Afghanistan and he hasn't seen any of the bad stuff happen in the war. He's still a very young 23-year-old um, in, uh, in this reading. Um, the British troops are in a camp with Americans, and the British are far outnumbered in this camp by um, the Americans. So the British are in a, in a minority. They've, they've got a little bit of a morale problem because they're surrounded by Yanks. They don't like it all that much. Um, and I've got three members of my writers group who are going to, uh, who are going to read for me. So I'd like to bring them up, uh, please, uh, one at a time. First of all is Linda Markarian, uh, who, uh, in addition to being a very great writer who, who, uh, herself, whose work I admire, uh, raises money uh, for the Boston Children's Museum, 
All writers have to have day jobs, and that's, that's Linda. Um, next is Yuri Allison, uh, who's the author of the Glamour Galore trilogy. I love that title. Um, the last novel in which is called, uh, uh, the last novel in that trilogy is called The Mermaid and the Sailor. Um, he also uh, has uh, a wonderful blog with his photography at yoriallison.com. And last of all, Michael Cox, um, who's a playwright, uh, who's had at least one, uh, one of his one-act plays produced, um, and who uh, cooks for a startup over in Cambridge, and knows how to make uh, a cocktail with bacon-infused bourbon. <laughs> okay, this scene is about uh, five minutes long. Linda's the narrator. Uh, Yori is playing Colonel Ar Andrew Arbuthnot. He's uh, a man in his 40s. This is his second uh, time in Afghanistan. He's not a great fan of the monarchy. He's essentially been given a, uh, a job he doesn't want to do that much in, when he's being asked to look after Harry. He has met, however, which he knew, uh, a woman who he knew in a former life, and this woman he, from, he knew in a former life is Harry's ex-nanny. And at the beginning of this um, excerpt, uh, Andrew has just been writing a letter, a, a, something of a love letter, um, to this nanny and hoping that the nanny who's now working for a Christian aid group in Kabul might be, actually be able to make a visit um, to come, come out to the camp and see them. One trigger warning before I stand to the side, this has got a four-letter word in it. Now, the Athenaeum is not a place for four-letter words, but Harry's a young soldier. Young soldiers sometimes talk like that. So in the interest of verisimilitude, I'm going to ask your forgiveness for the four-letter word. Okay. Thank you. Are we ready? We're ready. All right. And so we begin. He was folding the letter and putting it into a buff-colored army envelope when a voice behind him asked, Colonel Arbuthnot, sir. He slid around in his chair. Yes, Wales. He said with a sigh. It's the Americans, sir. They've got those dogs. Bomb sniffer canine patrol whales. I tried to pet one, sir. The Yank, who had his lead, told me I couldn't. Harry did an accurate impression of an American accent. Don't touch that dog. <laughs> That's an attack dog. He was trying to make Andrew laugh. Well, I should listen to him then, Lieutenant. Said Andrew, not amused. The thing is, sir, you know Mustafa Khan, sir? He says it's not fair that we haven't got any UK dogs. We are out here to secure the population from the insurgency, not to play with dogs, Lieutenant. No, of course not. You're right, sir. But, Khan, sir, he says he can get us an Afghan dog, an Afghan hound. You know, one of the tall ones? They're beauties, sir. Wales. Andrew began, sounding as if he wanted to sigh. Harry interrupted him. Sorry to cut in, sir, but you know our guys are a bit down. Everything, is, everything here is controlled by the Yanks. The food, the telly, the sport, everything. He said it every think, in hopes of getting a rise from Andrew. Andrew took a deep breath to begin his rejection of this idea. Harry raced forward. 
And if we could get our own dog, it would be a start. It would cheer everyone up. I'm sure of it, sir. Andrew stared back at him. He costs practically nothing, sir. I'd take care. I'd take care. I'd take care of him and feed him. I mean, train him. The guys would like that, sir. There's nothing in our budget for an Afghan hound. He costs practically nothing at all, sir. Fifty dollars. That's what Khan said. Andrew sighed again. He was temporarily stymied. Then it occurred to him. If I were to agree to the dog, Wales. Yes, sir. Would you be willing to help me with an idea I've had? Of course, sir. It's just that. I've noticed it too, of course, the Americans. We need to fly the flag a bit ourselves. Yes, we do, sir. And we may have some visitors before long from Kabul. They sometimes send out the British consul or um, embassy staff now, maybe even an infrastructure development group from the World Bank, one of the Christian aid groups. That sort of thing. In my experience, there will be visitors. It would be nice if we could show them our side and what we can do. Absolutely, sir. And I thought we might do a staged reading of a play. What? <laughs> yes. Why not? Well, what about some skits, sir? Instead, you know, Ollie G. He interviews real people, and then sends them up. And they don't get it. The Ali G show. He did Butras, 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 Butras Kali. Remember that? It was hysterical. You're talking about the former Secretary General of the United Nations. It was all in good fun, sir. No, Wales, not that. Harry stood with his shoulders beginning to slope downward. What then, sir? I thought Shakespeare. Oh, sir. He spoke as if he'd just been given five more days of guard duty. No, not that for fuck's sake. Andrew gave him ten more days. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> okay, um, so the, the next sort of question that I wanted to answer in the presentation was how did you get started with this idea? Why write a book on Prince Harry? Um, and that has an Athenaeum backstory uh, to it. Um, the fifth floor has a break room, a member's room that I think you all, uh, you all know about. And up there, one day when I was uh, probably trying to avoid doing the work that I had in front of me, I met Jackie DuPont, who's another member of the Athenaeum. And Jackie said, hey, look, I've got some tickets to go see a Royal Shakespeare Company production of Henry IV, Part One and Two, um, over at Emerson, because the Royal Shakespeare Company now um, is like the Met in New York, trying to do outre outreach to a global audience. So they do um, movies of their plays. And I, I was a little bit skeptical about this at first. I thought, how are you actually going to be able to do Shakespeare you know, on a sort of a, 
a sort of a simulcast kind of thing. And I was uh, not sure it was going to work. But in fact, it was a great production. Um, and um, I'm going to show you a, a little clip from an actor who, pre- who played uh, Prince Hal in this, um, in this production of Henry IV, Part One and Part Two, And it's really this performance of Shakespeare's Prince Hal that got me started thinking about Prince Harry, because they're both very similar characters. Um, they're both uh, party boys. They're both people who are thought of as no good, not serious, um, Harry was once caught in a, yacht, a Nazi uniform kicking out a window, and he had to apologize the next week in the newspapers. And I think you've all seen those pictures of him naked in Las Vegas where he's kind of playing pool with his, with his friends. Well, Prince Hal is a sort of a very similar figure, somebody who drinks, who's in the tavern, um, and you, who you think um, has no chance of ever getting serious and growing up. Um, but in, the fa- in, in fact... Uh, he, in the, course of the, in the course of the two plays, he does, and he eventually be, he becomes, as Henry V, um, an enormously admirable king. So um, I'm going to give you uh, Alex Hassel, who's a British actor, talking a little bit about Prince Hal, who he played in these RSC productions of, uh, of Henry IV. Prince Wales will surface very dissolute, wayward, and rebellious, trivial and vain, spent lots of time in the town and getting drunk, going to whorehouses. There's no evidence of him being valued, being brave enough to be on the battlefield, or certainly not being skilled enough. Not doing anything that a prince should do, if not in any way caring for anything that will happen one day in the country, a complete wasteful, but how, very early on in the play, actually says that this is a plan that he has. So that when he becomes king and suddenly turns it around, people are awed by this change and that it seems almost like a miracle. In fact, Henry V historically was really thought of a kind of superhuman king, that he was almost like a superhero, did impossible feats uh, on the battlefield, uh, and is still revered really as the greatest leader of, uh, you know, ever in this country. What's so good about these plays is that they straddle more than I think most other Shakespeare plays, the two worlds of the court and, and everyday life, the tavern life, and how more than any other character straddles those two worlds. Hal's journey is possibly, well, obviously I think so because I'm playing part, but possibly the most complex. It actually spans three plays, with either Henry IV and and then he becomes Henry V and uh, is king in the fifth. Okay, so that was Alex Hassel, um, who played Prince Hal, who was one of the reasons why I got started on this book. I was inspired by that production. Um, Anthony Schur, who's in this picture in front of that funny, funny mirror with the be- glass of beer in his hand, uh, played Falstaff, and he's also excellent. Um, I think you can get those, um, the, those discs of that 2014 production on, on Amazon or various places online from the RSC website, but I recommend it. It's, a, it's a, really a lovely, um, a lovely show. Another reason why Shakespeare and Prince Hal fell on fertile ground with me was that my father was an English professor, and one of his specialty subjects was Shakespeare. So I grew up sitting at the dinner table where my father could quote long passages from Shakespeare just from memory. Um, And that impressed me. I also had a brother, uh, Fritz, who could be very funny at the dinner table. 
And I thought, I, I, I probably, I think I just sat there growing up and soaked that in. And I also thought, well, these are important men in my life. I kind of wanted to be like them. Or um, more realistically, since I have a competitive streak, um, these are important men in my life, and I wanted to be better than them. <laughs> um, my brother Fritz is here tonight. So Fritz, will you raise your hand? <laughs> He's not, he works at a Hill Holiday in Boston. He's not the junior senator from Oregon. <laughs> okay. Um, as Arnold mentioned, when I was a kid, my father had a sabbatical, and we went and spent a year in England when I was 11, 12, and Fritz was 9, 10, uh, 1968, 69. Um, Fritz... Um, that fall was taken out of his school to go and see the Queen do the state opening in, of Parliament. You know, she drives by in her golden carriage and she opens the parliamentary session. Now, he went to a school um, which my parents regarded as not that serious and therefore they could take him out of school, whereas my, my school was considered more serious. We were doing Latin, we were doing French, we were doing English composition and English language and chemistry and biology. It put American schools to shame. <laughs> um, so they, didn't wanna, they wanted to leave me there. Um, at Fritz's school, it was the kind of a cool 60s, and we didn't actually know how cool it was. Um, at Fritz's school, they used to like, these nine-year-olds used to take off their clothes and be in their underwear and dance around a piano while Ivor Cutler was playing the piano for them. And, and I don't know whether or not you know who Ivor Cutler is, but he appears, and he, I think he, he assisted in some way in the Beatles' magical mystery tour. He later wrote some books. He was a really serious figure, but, you know, he was playing the, kid, playing the piano for these kids at this primary school. So <clears throat> we both had, um, we both had uh, exposure to a lot of interesting things in English life. But Fritz got to go see the Queen, and I didn't. Um, and... <clears throat> There, in a moment of sibling rivalry, was born my curiosity uh, about the monarchy. I mean, here they are. They're a modern democracy. They're a post-industrial nation. They've got TV. They've got movies. They've got porta potties which they call port by the way. What are they doing holding on to this old world monarchy? That was my question as a 12-year-old. Well, it's carried on a long time after the 12-year-old because <laughs> um, I then went and worked on a similar question as an undergraduate. I did a BA paper on working on uh, Queen Victoria's Jubilees and a PhD looking at Victorian royal ceremonial to try and ask uh, a version of the same question, which was, why retain a medieval institution in, in, in the modern era? What's the political rationale for it? Why, why hang on to it? And I have to say that this book, which um, was my first book that came out of my dissertation, got me into some trouble. Um, I attacked a rival academic who had a rival answer to my question. Um, and his question was, why do we have a monarchy? Um, because 19th century royal ceremonies were invented traditions, something created by the bourgeoisie to keep the proletariat in line, bread and circuses, smoke and mirrors, whereby an elite held on to power and exerted social control on people underneath them. I don't believe that. Um, there are elements of, elements of that which are, which are plausible, but 
I would say more mildly that the monarchy was a kind of social glue and that democracy is by its nature contentious. Sometimes votes go the wrong way. Sometimes you don't believe, uh, sometimes you don't have very friendly feelings about your fellow countrymen. And the, uh, the essential thing about uh, a monarchy and days of celebration that focus on national history and historical continuity is that there are things that people can kind of agree on and can um, sort of lighten up on and which can in a way strengthen and stabilize democracy. It didn't undermine it, um, or that's what I think about the Victorian monarchy anyway. I wrote another book um, on two Victorian courtiers who served under Queen Victoria. And that book also had an argument that, the, that there's a certain entertainment or even amusement or even comic value in the monarchy as well. Henry Punsonby was um, Queen Victoria's private secretary, essentially her chief of staff. And he would go with the queen every year to Scotland for several months in the year. The wives were not allowed to go along. Um, queen Victoria was very tyrannical about that. She wanted the men to come, the wives to stay at home. And he would write his, his, his letter, the, his wife, these letters from Scotland saying, um, in effect, my dear, we have an important controversy going on here in Scotland. I have been asked to consult the Prime Minister about it. The question is, who shall and who shall not be allowed to ride the Highland ponies? <laughs> um, so their letters are, the, le the letters are, are, are hilarious and were um, great fun to read. And their sons later used the letters um, as ways of talking and characterizing the Victorian monarchy. And I think that, that that kind of amusement value was kind of enshrined at that point um, in the historical record about the monarchy. Well, Henry Punsonby didn't take himself too seriously. That's one of the things which is um, engaging about him. I also think it's not that, it's, it's important not to take yourself too seriously as a biographer or a historian, and that's why I wrote my first novel in 2012. Um, Mrs. Queen Takes the Train is about the queen going AWOL from the palace. Um, she's a bit depressed after um, uh, all her work in the post-Diana period doesn't seem to amount to much, and she goes to her happy place in Edinburgh on a public train, um, which is very unscheduled, and she's there, and talking to ordinary people who don't recognize her because she's got a hoodie on and she's got these kind of big, uh, big sunglasses. A band of unlikely characters try and follow her to bring her back before the tabloids um, find her out and bring her back by force. So my identity as a writer, if I have one, is somewhere between academic history and pop culture. And because neither universities nor People magazine entirely know what to make of me, I make my home here at the Athenaeum. <laughs> okay, my, uh, my next question is, how did I do the research for this book? Um, it is a book which is uh, based on a, a, a factual setting, and so I tried to um, make um, some, of the, some of the things in it as accurate as I could, in addition to imagining and making other things up. Um, not all of it is made up. Uh, Ashraf Ghani is the current president of Afghanistan. No, he's not my best friend. 
Um, but he did do a PhD in anthropology at Columbia, and he was on the faculty of the anthropology department at Johns Hopkins when I was an undergraduate there doing a field there. Um, so he was off at the, often at the seminar table when I was a grad student. I didn't know him. He wouldn't remember me. But I'm putting him up there anyway because I used to be at the same seminar table with him. <laughs> what was Ashraf Ghani like? Well, he never talked about Afghanistan at the seminar table. He talked about Roland Barthes. Um, this was the 1980s. All academics were really obsessed with French theorists in the, in the 1980s. Um, we loved Roland Barthes. We loved Jacques Derrida. We thought they were so cool with their long words and their cigarettes. Um, so uh, I remember once who the, the prince of these guys, who was called Jacques Derrida, came to give a lecture at Johns Hopkins. And the first thing he said was, you know, I'm in America, but I'm going to speak French, so up yours. And the other thing was he said, I have a very important line that I'm going to unpack and analyze for the next hour. And my line is this, oh, my friends, I have no friends. Oh, mes amis, je n'ai pas d'amis. And everybody's saying, wow, that is really deep. <laughs> what is he going to say next? Okay, well, while I was working on my nonfiction on the monarchy, I spent a lot of time in the Royal Archives, um, both reading the Punsonby letters and reading other, other things. And I met uh, one of the archivists there, Pam Clark, who invited me to a Christmas party um, at Buckingham Palace. Um, that was a long time ago. We were so young and so beautiful. <laughs> um, but I got the hard card. The master of the household has received Her Majesty's command to invite Mr. William Coon to the um, to the palace. So I was really um, I was really excited about that. Uh, I didn't meet any members of the royal family, but they were all there. That was the first time I saw Harry's mother in person. She had this long red dress on and um, red satin shoes with a blocky heel. Um, and all my fellow academics in that era were saying things like, power to the people, death to the establishment, the monarchy is a tool in the hands of the imperialist oppressor. And I was saying, will you take a look at those red shoes? <laughs> I taught for 15 years at Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin in the history department. And um, I had students who were deployed um, uh, in, that, uh, in that period. The tough guy over on the right of that, um, of that image is Nate Becker, who I can remember as the class jokester and the class clown from my European history class. He could always make the class laugh. Um, he was on the track team. He was a very bouncy and popular guy. Popular guy. He had two deployments. Um, to Iraq, and he now serves on the Madison, Wisconsin Police Department. Uh, he came back from his deployments. I'm glad to say he survived. He got married. He has two kids. But he also came back changed by them. Um, and there's a little bit of Nate Becker in my picture of Prince Harry. Another book I did um, was a biography of Benjamin Disraeli. Um, and in this book on Disraeli, I was emphasizing um, Disraeli's dandyism. There was a, a long period, especially when he was a young man, when he was before his prime ministerial career, when he was writing novels, 
He was going around London in satin vests and floppy ties. And um, I got a couple of kids whom, I've, whom I'd met through the London Library, which is kind of the sister institution of this, of the Boston Athenaeum. And if you haven't been to London Library, you've got to go there on your next trip. But at the London Library, I met two kids who were in college, and they agreed to help me with uh, a photo shoot for the UK magazine Country Life, where they dressed up as Disraeli and dandies uh, in the 19th century. They'd both been to Eton. Um, and I was, of course, curious about that and pestered them um, with questions. They both had been there in the era that Harry was there. Um, they treated me basically as someone who was barely to be tolerated. <laughs> they were happy to go along on the photo shoot, but they weren't going to ask too many questions. But that did give me a vague idea about how privileged kids might orient themselves to the world and how their mock contempt that they had for their old high school might be a kind of defense mechanism. And that gave me some stuff um, to use about Harry. One of them, the dark-haired one, David Gelber, uh, now has done a PhD in history and is working for a literary magazine in London. Um, the other one, Sam Bumpus, uh, has his own catering business where he provides enormous vodka-infused jellos for big parties. <laughs> I have, his, I, I have his email if you have a demand for that. <laughs> I also did reading. I mean, I was a, an academic, so you, you try and do reading to, um, to get going on a research project. There were a number of books at the Athenaeum, in the Athenaeum's collections, which I used to do research on this project. Um, this is the... British Museum's catalog for an exhibition which had an argument af about Afghanistan, um, which was that it, it was at the crossroads of the ancient world, halfway between ancient Greece and ancient India. And archaeological excavations there have uncovered relics that um, show the Afghans were very rich, um, especially in, the period, in a period before Homeric Greece. So this is many centuries before the Christian era. They found gold decorations, crowns, and jewelry going back to that um, period before Homeric Greece. That gave me a plot point for my novel. Um, what if this Afghan uh, brother officer who Harry has uh, who's, being, who's, Harry, who's deployed with Harry, had a knowledge and an appreciation of this art. And one of, one of the reasons why he's out there is to defend the country's historical, archaeological, and artistic tradition as much as it, is, as it is to attack the Taliban. I also read um, two books by great walkers. Um, the British in general are great walkers and great writers of kind of travel literature about their walking. Maybe some of you have heard of Patty Lee for more who made a, a famous walk from the Hook of Holland to Istanbul in the 1920s. Well, Robert Byron was one of that ilk too. He wrote a, a book called The Road to Oxiana in the 1920s, um, which was a walking tour through Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, he's paid a special attention, not, um, not just to um, art and architecture, which he was very interested in, but into, in, into how ordinary people lived. Uh, he died in the Second World War, Robert Byron. Uh, Rory Stewart, 
um, who's on the cover of the New York Times book review with that long staff, is still very much alive. He made a walking trip across Afghanistan. He had some anthropological background. He's got a lot of ethnographic detail in his book, The Places in Between, about spending time in ordinary Afghan houses and their appreciation of the, the art and architecture around them. Um, he later served in the British Foreign Office in Iraq, and he's now a member of parliament. Um, both of them kind of give a sort of sense of how ordinary Afghans live down on the ground, which, um, which was important for my, um, for my book. Um, and then last of all, um, I did some research on YouTube, <laughs> uh, where you can go and see pictures of Harry. Harry was in the Army from 2005 to 2015. He's left the Army now. And one of his main charitable activities is helping out servicemen and servicewomen who have been, in some way, injured um, during their service. They've lost a limb, or they've st they're, they're suffering from post-traumatic stress, something along those lines. And so he's organized, one of the things that he's organized is a race to the North Pole called uh, Walking with the Wounded, where the Australians and the British and the Americans all kind of competed um, in fairly uh, difficult conditions uh, to walk, ac walk across um, Arctic territory to get to the North Pole. I've got a video um, now which shows the Queen meeting those walking with the wounded people um, at Buckingham Palace. Uh, the sound on this video is not very good because I kind of took it off of, um, off of YouTube. But there is a kind of a funny joke in it at one point, which I'm going to tell you now because you may not be able to hear it. Um, you hear the queen being interested to, uh, introduced, first of all, to an Australian, and she says, oh, Australia, as if that's the most fascinating thing she's ever heard of. Um, <clears throat> but then she's later on introduced to an American, and it's said of this American that he guided one of the teams um, across this difficult route um, to the North Pole, and the queen says, oh, that was very brave of you, wasn't it? And Harry leans in at that point and says, I shared a tent with him, ma'am. That was incredibly brave on my part. <laughs> <clears throat> it's interesting, too, that Harry doesn't call the queen Lilibet. He doesn't call her granny. He calls her ma'am. Okay, um, 
Well, that's a friend of mine um, reading her copy of Prince Harry Boydeman in a pool in California, which is where we should all be. Um, <clears throat> but in the meantime, you've been incredibly patient and brave <laughs> to listen to me. So thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.